2 Peter, chapter 2, verses 10 to 22 is what we're looking at. And God speaks it to us, which is why we deliberately give our attention to him as he speaks. I want to hear what he says and want him uh, to help us to respond uh, in trust as he speaks to us. Let's pray. Uh, Father, thank you for your word that you speak. Uh, Thank you for the privilege of hearing it together. Uh, Please do uh, help us to hear and understand, help us to hear and trust you as you speak to us. In the Lord Jesus, amen. Scams rely on deception. Um, got a graphic. Um, I scrolled through my text message spam just a little bit, just so I could get a little line of all messages that were doing the same thing from different numbers. But none of the messages actually say, click here to add a virus to your phone. None of them say, click here to visit a website and enter your name and address and date of birth and help us steal your identity. Uh, it's a little list of messages, uh, promising packages. Actually, it was one of these that I nearly fell for because uh, I was waiting for a package to arrive and, yeah, the, the, the message arrives. Um, Android spam filter didn't quite get it in, in time, so I thought, oh, it's nearly here. And then I, yeah, realized it was... Uh, not a, it was saying it was from DHL, but it wasn't, not a DHL website. Previous experience, and the warnings that these sorts of things arise mean that I didn't tap. Well, scams rely on deception. They don't work once you realize what's going on. What Peter's doing in the middle of this book is he's showing us the truth about false teachers so that we'll recognize the scam. We won't fall for the deception. He began chapter 2 by saying, don't be surprised and don't be worried. Uh, There have been false prophets. There will always be false teachers, so don't be surprised. God has always known how to rescue his people. Jesus knows how to rescue his people, so don't be worried. But do watch out. Uh, because verse 9, Jesus will also judge the ungodly. And then the especially, verse 10, those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Lust of defiling passion uh, echoes verse 2, where Peter described false teachers' life as full of sensuality. Uh, they live as if anything goes. They go all in with their corrupt instincts. They don't hold back at all from their desires which defile them. They despise authority. That echoes verse 1, where Peter uh, says about the false teachers, they even deny the master who bought them. They refuse to serve Jesus. They look down on his lordship. They despise his authority. The rest of verse 10 through to uh, the beginning of verse 13, uh, Peter says more about how they despise authority. And then through the end of verse 16, about how they are driven by defiling desires. Now, after showing us Jesus who can rescue, he shows us the character of these false teachers. There's detail to draw in with the, the things that, that, that Peter says here. There's probable backgrounds, some plausible, some not. 
Uh, there's probable detail about what they taught and why they, why they taught it. But I'm going to spare you that because I don't think it will bring a lot more clarity. And because Peter's deliberately writing with wider implications in mind. It's not just writing about the false teachers who happens to be among the people he first wrote to. He's writing with the ones that might come in the future among the people he wrote to, with the people who might come among us. Uh, some of you will recognize, uh, as, I, uh, as we go through the passage, you'll be thinking of people who, ha- who you've, you've seen on the internet, who you've met, who you've heard teach, and you'll be thinking, they're like that. Others of you, not so much. All of us need to be careful because false teachers will come. So halfway through verse 10, uh, Peter says more about how they despise authority. They're bold and willful, stubborn and arrogant. They insist on getting their way, and not even God puts the brakes on their determination. They do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. So there's no hint of humility as they speak against the glorious ones. Uh, Somehow they are saying things against creatures more glorious than them, which should not cross their lips. Uh, The right response to glory in the Old Testament is to tremble. Uh, Prophets tremble before the Lord God. Uh, People tremble tremble before angel messengers. Uh, God calls his people to tremble at his word. These false teachers, they don't tremble. They don't tremble as they speak blasphemy. Uh, They slander creatures who are more glorious than them. And Peter exposes their error by pointing to more glorious creatures, angels. Angels are much greater in might and power than mere human false teachers. But they, those angels, they do not pronounce blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. Verse 11, the angels don't accuse the righteous like Satan accused Job at the beginning of of that book. They don't even accuse before the Lord with true accusations people like the false teachers. Much more mighty angels know their place. It's not their place to speak blasphemous judgment, slanderous judgment. They leave it to the Lord to judge. Meanwhile, stubborn and arrogant false teachers, they speak against the creatures that are more glorious than them. So what are they saying? Now, obviously the first hearers of the letter knew. We're left, I think Peter gives us some clues. One clue might be chapter 3, where the teachers are mocking the future judgment. They're saying the judgment hasn't come yet and it will never come, that whole idea of, resur- of yeah, resurrection, future life. Forget about it. Perhaps they just generally mock the idea of everything supernatural. Do they even mock the idea of angels? Or do, they, do they speak as if they are superior to fallen angels? As if those rebel powers have no power over them? Well, possibly is that, um, is that mocking that is what they're doing? But I wonder if the more relevant clue is actually their complete rejection of the law. They're, they're lawless. They do not tremble before the law. Now, part of what's got me thinking about this is that uh, in Acts, Stephen speaks to the Jews who received the law as delivered by angels. In Galatians, Paul says the law was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Uh, Hebrews points to it as 
the message declared by angels. And these false teachers are so far from trembling at God's word, it's easy to imagine them actively saying the angels who delivered that word messed it up. Directly or indirectly, somewhere or other, they're rejecting the law, they're saying those glorious angels are false guides. I think that fits with the flow of the letter. Regardless of what they're what, exactly what they're saying, these humans were demonstrating their arrogance towards the glorious ones, which is in complete contrast to the humility of those glorious ones. No doubt these false teachers, they thought they understood. Uh, no doubt they thought they were clear, clear-headed, clear-thinking. They thought they were the rational ones. They speak as if they are the ones who see and everyone else is blind to the truth. As if everyone else is on the wrong side of history. As if anyone who says something different to them is against human thriving. But smart as they may sound, verse 12, Peter says they're like irrational animals. They're not more human by believing the things they believe. They're less human. They're creatures of instinct. See, part of the goodness of being human is that we're not driven by instincts. We're able to desire and not do. But these false teachers, they've traded in a rational reflection for doing whatever they desire. They're like animals bred for slaughter, waiting to be caught and destroyed. But they do not see it. They think their words mark them as above others, that they're the more informed ones, they're the more aware ones. They speak with great confidence. They blaspheme about things they have no idea about. They'll be destroyed, and that destruction will be exactly the wage for their wrongdoing. Look at what they deserve. They despise authority, but the Lord will judge them. Then halfway through verse 13, Peter focuses on the other idea from verse 10. They're driven by defiling desires. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They're shameless. They celebrate publicly what should not be done privately. And publicly includes here among believers gathered to eat as an expression of their fellowship in the gospel. And Christ's purpose for his people is that we be without spot or blemish. But these false teachers, they're blots and blemishes. They delight in their deceptions. And they do it inside the Christian community, shamelessly acting as part of it, saying it's normal. They're among the believers, verse 14, with eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. Sex outside marriage is a well-worn path for them. It's a well-worn path in their minds. It's how they see the world. Always looking for opportunities. They can never have enough of adultery or any other sin. At the all-you-can-eat sin, sin banquet, these are the guys who just keep coming back for more and more and more. And they never sicken of it. They never tire of sin. They're always ready for more. And the second verse, I have a verse 14. They entice unsteady souls. They have heart trains and grade. They are accursed children. It reads a little bit like it's kind of disconnected, like he's moved on from what he was saying. But entice the unstable, 
They actually do it with Balaam-like greed. Enticing others is straightforward. They invite, they encourage others to join them in their all-you-can-eat sin banquet. Uh, They specifically target uh, unsteady believers. Uh, But verse 3 connects their influence with greed. Uh, In their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Verse 14 pictures them practicing in the gym, training their greed. Some guys lift, but they don't look like they lift. These guys practice greed, and they look like they have practiced greed. They're they're, they're very thoroughly able. And it is greed like Balaam's. So the end of verse 15. Balaam loved gain from wrongdoing. That's why he did it, for the gain. Uh, The long story of Balaam's greed and wrongdoing is in Numbers chapter 22 to 24. It's a little bit incomplete, but the the story is uh, uh, Balak, the king of of Moab, is up against Israel. Uh, He sees God blessing them, so he thinks, I'll hire one of God's prophets to curse them. So he sends to hire uh, Balaam. He wants Balaam to curse Israel. But God tells Balaam it's not possible. He can't speak curse against Israel because Israel are blessed. Greedy Balaam really, really, really wants the gold, though. Uh, he's on, uh, he winds up on his way to meet Balak uh, when his speechless donkey speaks and holds back his madness. Uh, when he gets as far as Balak, Balaam doesn't speak curse. He speaks the words that God gives him. That's all he can speak. He speaks blessing. So why do you think, what went wrong other than what he wanted to do? You can imagine that Balak, the king of Moab, he's pretty unhappy with not getting what he's sent for. But the next thing after Balaam leaves Balak is this. Numbers chapter 25, verses 1 to 3. Sorry, I didn't do a slide. Numbers chapter 25, verses 1 to 3 say, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. They invited the people to sacrifice to their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. They bowed down to the gods of Moab. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. You see what happened? The people who couldn't be cursed wound up under God's anger. Numbers chapter 31, verse 16. Numbers chapter 31, verse 16 explains what happened. Behold, these on Balaam's advice caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor. And so the plague came among the congregation of the Lord. So Balak, he, sorry, Balaam couldn't speak curse on Israel, but he could earn his wages. He earned them by telling the king of Moab how to bring God's anger down on Israel. He told them, entice them to sin. Entice them to leave you as their Lord and worship other gods. That's the way of Balaam. And these false teacher, teachers, they have forsaken the right way. They have left the way of truth and they're walking in Balaam's way. The way of ungodliness which attracts curse on themselves. The way of enticing others into ungodliness which attracts curse on them too. The way of making money from enticing others into curse. Of course, that's not how they describe themselves. Ah, They think their life is better uh, because they've bought what they're selling. 
Uh, they're, 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 they're selling it to you because they think your life will be better if only you have this as well. So Peter finishes the chapter by shifting from talking about what they're like, their character, to what they achieve, the results of their influence. Verse 17, they're waterless springs. They're mist-driven by a storm. They're, they're like a tap that promises water on a hot and thirsty day, and you turn it on and nothing. They're like mist brought in by a storm uh, that will be gone as quickly as they blow in. They don't deliver what they promise, like the tap with no water. And they're not here for long like the mists being blown by the storm. And their fate, verse 4, is the same as their rebellious angels. Sorry, their fate is the same as the rebellious angels in verse 4. Darkness, verse 17. The Lord has reserved the gloom of utter darkness for them. Judged. Will judge. Why? Why will he treat them like that? The passage tells us, verse, eight, verse 18, 4. Because, because speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. See, they're in among believers who are beginning. And they're doing what Balak did with Balaam's advice. They're enticing believers who have begun to escape from those who live falsehood, and they're saying, come back. Don't leave your old life behind. You can do what you did. There's no need to change. Now, it seems that they actually said, you're free to change, because the word freedom is one that Paul starts using. But look at them, he says. They're not free. They are completely controlled by their corruption. They talk freedom, but they live slavery. Peter says you can see it if you just look at them. Because whatever can overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. They say we're free to do whatever we desire. Peter says you're enslaved to do whatever you desire. You're enslaved to your corrupt desires. See, that's their life. They say they live freedom, they say they give freedom, but they aren't free and they don't deliver freedom. They and those who follow them are slaves to corruption. Compare that to the, uh, the promise, compare that pro- their, their promise that fails with the promise back in chapter 1, verse 3, 3 and 4. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Knowing and trusting our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, promises participation in his nature. He'll remake us in his image. He is remaking us while we wait. We have escaped the corruption. Our sinful desires no longer enslave us. Not that they're gone, they still influence us. Less and less, though maybe we notice it more and more. But they no longer enslave us. When Jesus brings us home, they will have no influence at all. Life while we wait, 
Well, it's not so-called freedom to just live in those desires. It's freedom to live instead by leaving them behind. To live as forgiven children who are servants of Jesus, our master who bought us. Jesus promises and delivers true freedom, the true freedom of entering his service. Verses uh, 20 and 22 show us the sad state of those false teachers who think they're free, who appear to be among Christ's people, but they never changed. If you'd been there uh, when they first encountered the gospel, uh, you'd have thought, hey, these guys are following Jesus. Uh, They're escaping the defilements of the world uh, through their knowledge of of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, they've turned their their back. They've turned their back on sin, but they've turned back now to sin. They are again overcome. And at the end of verse 20 it says, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. It's worse for them now than before they heard the gospel. It's worse for them because they heard the way of righteousness, because they heard the holy commandment. Commandment's the word that um, Peter's using here to talk about the gospel, chapter 3, verse 2, the gospel, the, the commandment spoken by Jesus through his apostles. They heard the gospel, and in some sense they began. But they turned back from its way to Balaam's way. They were lured and enticed, and they lure and entice others to enjoy unrighteousness. So, why is it worse for them? Well, first, I think it's worse because they're less likely to give the gospel another thought. They, they think they've heard it. They, they think they've experienced it. They think they've found something better. So when they hear the gospel again, They've already decided against it. I think it's worse that way. But I think it's also worse for them because they've decided against it after deciding for it. Imagine two pupils who are about to be punished for not completing an assignment. Uh, Fred was in class. Uh, His teacher told him uh, what to do. He read the emails describing the the assignment. Uh, He made a start and then decided he'd rather play switch. No assignment. Frida, though, uh, she's been on holiday with her family. She knew she should be keeping up with class, uh, but she didn't get the emails. She didn't get the emails which explained the assignment, and so she didn't start it, let alone finish it. Now, they're both going to be punished. They're both going to face consequences. But Fred deserves a bigger punishment than Frida because he knew and started and stopped. It's worse for false teachers because they deliberately decided against the gospel after deciding for it. The third way it's worse is because they've enticed others. They've enticed others to join them. Others who have begun with Jesus, they're enticing to say, leave him. Perhaps Peter had Jesus warning, uh, rattling around in his mind, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe, curse to the one through whom they come. They heard the gospel, and in some sense they began, but they turned back, and it's worse for them than if they'd never begun. Now, 
Is Peter intending us to think these false teachers and those who ultimately follow them, is he intending us to think of them as genuine believers who lose their salvation? No, I don't think so. Uh, One reason is the care that Peter has taken as he's brought us to telling us this. He's brought us here after showing us the resource for life and godliness that we have in knowing and trusting our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. After sh- he's brought us here after showing us the certainty of the prophetic and apostolic words, but show us the truth about Jesus. And then showing us one particular truth about Jesus. The truth which Genesis showed us about God is able, he knows how to, he's proved his record in rescuing Noah and Lot, far from perfect as they are, so also Jesus knows how to rescue his people. So Christ's people, we have all that we need in know, through our knowledge and trusting of the Lord Jesus. And Christ knows how to rescue his people. Peter's not aiming to unsettle us. No, these aren't genuine believers who Jesus began to save but isn't going to complete. So, what is going on with them? If they're not genuine, what? Is, well, Peter gives us a picture in verse 22. What the true proverb has, what the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, the pig, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. He intends to turn your stomach. Intends to turn your stomach as you imagine a dog that's uh, just thrown up on the floor in front of you. It threw it up because it ate something uh, that's turned its stomach. But as soon as it's out and on the floor, its tongue is out and on the vomit. Sorry, Peter wants you to think about it. See, these false, these false teachers, they threw up their sin. They threw it up in a steamy, stinky pile whatever they experience around first hearing the gospel, they threw up their sin like a steamy, stinky pile on the floor. And now they're enjoying the freedom to lap it up and eat it again. They're insatiable. They can't get enough of it. They think it's wonderful. They never sicken of eating their own vomits. They're doing what's natural to them. Peter intends you to say, intends you to say that nothing below the surface has changed in these false teachers. A pig can jump around in water and come out clean. But give it a minute and it'll be rolling in the mud where it eats and weighs and poos. False teachers, they can uh, clean up their acts, they can talk that they're forgiven. But their nature is to be back rolling in the mud of their sin and selfishness and greed. Add to those images an awareness that both dogs and pigs were unclean in Jewish minds. Peter's saying they're being true to their nature by going back to their sin. They have no new nature. That's why they go back and enjoy it. 
whatever their beginning involved in terms of throwing up sin and in terms of coming out clean, they may have looked shiny and new. They may have, it may have seemed like sin is unwelcome, but now you see what's true. You see it as they, as they look up from uh, their vomited up sin, eating more and more and saying, you should have some of yours too. As they roll around in the, in the, in the dirt and, and wee and poo and say, it's a good idea for you to do the same. So what about you? Scams rely on deception and God shows you the truth. So what about you? Well, first and obvious, as you hear ideas and teachings, when you see teachers like this who are greedy and ungodly, don't follow. They think their life is better because uh, they've bought what they're selling. They tell you your life will be better if you buy what they're selling. But God shows you reality. Let his word open your eyes to reality. So you see what they're eating and what they're rolling in. So you see their love for sin that they never sickened for of it. You see their Balaam-like greed to get you to join with them. You see where they are heading to a condemnation worse than if they'd never begun. And inviting you to join them in it. See what God shows you and don't be deceived. And do keep looking to Jesus. Jesus who knows how to rescue the godly from trials, including the test and trial of someone aiming to lead you astray and away from him. Lean on him. But what about you if you feel like you have no new nature? What if you find yourself going back again and again and again and again? Because what you want to do, and you can't get enough of sin. Well, it's time to truly turn, isn't it? It's time to go all in with Jesus, to recognize that whatever that first following was, is not the true following. It's time to come to our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who freely forgives, who gives genuine determination to live with faith-filled virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, love. To live a new life all as an overflow of trusting that Jesus who gave himself to buy you out from under sin and death and judgment. Trusting that he is a better master than your own desires. They deceive you. If you truly have no new nature, it's time to come and trust. But what if, about if you have gone all in and you're making effort and you keep failing? What if progress is painfully slow? You hear this word and you see the dirt on your, on your skin and you taste the vomit in your mouth and you can wonder if you have no new nature. It's okay to ask yourself but it's a mistake to confuse influence with slavery. It's confused being influenced by your sin to being controlled by your sin. 
to still having a taste for sin to enjoying and delighting in your sin. Right, flee it, flee sin, always flee sin. Don't hear me trying to you know, lower any bars here. But don't let Satan turn your godly sorrow as you seek to put sin to death. Don't let Satan turn your godly sorrow and your distaste for sin into a reason for despair. Yeah? Don't let Satan turn your godly sorrow and distaste for sin into a reason for despair and do keep looking to Jesus to forgive. To forgive you for what's past, to strengthen you to live a life of godliness as you hear his word truly taught as he works in you by his good Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Our great God and Heavenly Father, thank you that you do show us reality. You show us things as they truly are. Uh, Father, please do uh, guard us. Uh, Please do help us uh, to recognize where we are uh, hearing influences that would lead us astray from Christ. Father, please open our eyes to see it, uh, that seeing it as... Seeing the deception, uh, we would stick with what's true. Father, we pray to that you give us courage among our wider circles of uh, Christian friends uh, to speak words of warnings, not just among our wider circles, but among one another, that will keep calling one another back to seeing the Lord Jesus as the one who is truly and completely able to save. He knows how to do it. And to pursuing the life uh, which comes from recognizing him as our good master who gave himself to buy us, that we might be his own people. And we ask it through him. Amen.